Now, our mental health nursing concept. We'll look at mental health nursing concept. We'll look at mental health, which is psychiatrist. It's the study of uh, mental illnesses and its treatment or in their treatment. Um, in mental health, the provision of care to clients in mental health setting is based on standards of care set by the American Nurses Association, the ASA, the American Psychiatric Nurses Association, the APNA, and the International Society of Psychiatric Mental Health Nurses. So this various body come together to uh, set up the standards that we meet when we are providing mental health care or psych nursing care to our participants or to our residents or to our patients. Now, nurses working in this, uh, in this mental health field or in this mental health setting will use the nursing process like any other group of nurses. So whether you are a psych nurse, an OB nurse, message nurse, we all use the same nursing process because it works for everyone. So we still go through assessment, we go through diagnosis or data collections, we go through um, planning, implementation, then we go to the evaluation to see whether what we did was correctly done, was done haphazardly, or was not even done at all. So these are things we look at. Now, um, nurses should use different methods to assess the client. Now, these methods are, they might include, or they include, we do observation, we interview our patients, we do physical examinations, and we do teamwork to come up with our data. So the data we come up with help us to like, uh, formulate our goals or plan for our patient. Then we we'll go ahead, implement from there, we provide every uh, necessary uh, logistical support to our clients. That's how we achieve these goals as site nurses. Now, uh, on our assessment, we look at the client's psychosocial history, the client's cultural belief, because culturally, mental health plays a major role. Culture pl plays a major role in mental health. In that, uh, when mental health was first introduced, was first seen as a science to get treatment through a refined or a conventional method, there were so many myths surrounding mental health. So we progressed from those myths or those medical era up to the modern era. So we came from a long way. Now, even as we are today, other countries around the world are still fighting to reach to where the U.S. and other countries in Europe are today. So um, we have to take into consideration our cultural beliefs and practices when it comes to mental health. We look at the spiritual and religious belief. What, uh, how, how, how does the Muslim, the, Is uh, the Islamic religion, see uh, mental health? How does Christianity see mental health? How Buddhism see mental health? These are all different means by which mental health is observed or is seen in different religious groupings and other things. Now, but all in all, our goal is to focus to provide a treatment to safeguard our clients when they are having mental health symptoms. Now, 
We look at the level of consciousness when it comes to mental health. We do what we call the MSE. The MSE is Mental Status Examination. MSE is the tools we use to examine our clients in mental health. Now, what makes mental health a little bit difficult is that uh, in mental health, we do a lot of case definitions rather than doing laboratory testing. In medical surgical nursing, our, our, our diagnosis is based mainly 99% on lab and other uh, blood tests that we do. We do blood, urine, other lab values. Based upon that, they give us our diagnosis. We come up with it. But in mental health, majority of our clients in mental health, we get information from them through assessment. And that assessment is what we call the mental status examination, which is the MSE. Under here, we look at the level of consciousness. That's the first thing we look at here. The client level of consciousness. Now, the client, what's the client level? Is the client uh, alert? So the first level, which is the highest, is level one, which is alertness. Alertness, the client is alert. Now, under here, when the client is alert, that's the highest level. So you and I walking around here, understand that we have tests coming up, preparing for our tests, meaning we are alert, that is alertness. So under the client is responsive, and the client responds fully. So other spoken words, languages, and the client feels the environmental stimulus that are going to come and trigger the client. So when you can respond to spoken words, you know yourself, you know oriented three times three to yourself, the persons around you, the place you are, everything what you're going through, meaning you are alert. That is alertness. Then after alertness, then we enter what we call lethargy. The second level is lethargy, L-E-T-H-A-R-G-I-C, lethargy or lethargy, G-Y. It could be G-R as a noun or it could be G-R-C as, as, as an adverb. Now, under here, the client is able to open her eyes and respond, but the client might be drowsy or the client is drowsy. So when you can open your eyes and respond to spoken words or spoken language, but you feel drowsy, that case you fall under lethargy. And on a, on, a, on a lethargy, you are very quick to fall asleep. So the client might open the eyes and the nurse will call the client, Nurse John Brown. Yes. Oh, how are you? I'm doing uh, fine. Now you open your eyes to respond to someone talking to you, but your response is slower and you go back into that mood, that into, in, 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 into that slow mood. That is what we call lethargy. Then we have stuporous. The third level becomes stuporous. Now, stuporous is the level at which the client is able to, the client can respond to painful stimuli. Now, in stuporous, when you call the client, the client does not respond to voice commands, but the client responds to painful stimuli. When you pinch the client's skin, the client shakes their hands and they move their body. When you Pinch the client ear, the client feel the pins from the pinch on the ear. That is what we call stupor. So when the client is at stupor or is in stupor position or is in stupor state, the client cannot respond to spoken language, but they can respond to what painful stimuli. Now, then we have the last one, which is comatose. Then we have comatose. The fourth stage is coma. Now, when the client gets into coma, 
or when the client goes into coma, um, the client becomes unconscious and does not respond to painful stimuli. So in comatose stage, the client cannot respond to what? Painful stimuli. So the first one is alertness. The client can answer questions spontaneously and appropriately. What's your name? My name is Amandu Kone. Where do you live? I live in Pennsylvania. What do you do? I'm a nurse. Where do you work? I work at this place. Now, meaning you are alert and you can answer these questions spontaneously and appropriately. Meaning you are alert. The second one is lethargy. In here, the client is able to open his or her eyes and respond but drowsy and fall asleep. What's your name? Oh, my name is, um, uh, that is, you are actually going through the target. You can open your eyes, you will respond, where your respond will be slower, and at the end of the response, you cannot utter the words. The next one is the stuporous. Stuporous, the client cannot respond to spoken words, but painful stimuli. The last one is comatose, which is the client is unconscious. Now, in comatose, we have two distinct things we look at in comatose. We look at uh, the client could be in decorticate rigidity or the client could be in decerebrate rigidity. Now, there are two postures the client assume in comatose. One is decorticate, decorticate, and decerebrate, decerebrate, and decorticate rigidity, rigidity, and rigidity down here. So there are two kinds of postures. The client will assume when the client gets into coma. Now, the decorticate rigidity is where in the client there's a flexion and internal rotation of the client upper extremity joints in the legs. So there is a flexion. The client hands flexes, or uh, the client hands will flex in this direction. You see the client lying in the bed. The client hands is hands are flexed like this. Now, in that case, it's what we call the decorticate rigidity. Now, when the client neck and elbow are extended ex in, this, in, in this form, that is decerebrate uh, rigidity. So in decorticate, the client arms are flexed. In decerebrate, the client hands or limbs are extended. Those are the two <coughs> postures that the client will assume. One of those two postures when the client is in comatose stage. Now, so we look at, so that was on the, uh, the client level of consciousness and like i said under the mse the first thing we look at is the level of consciousness is is the loc <coughs> under the mse we look at the loc one is the loc level of consciousness here we have five we have alertness or alert two we have our lethargy three we have our stupor four we have coma and on the coma, we have the decorticate and we have the decerebrate. So this was the first MSE, mental status examination. The first step is level of consciousness. Now, then the second one becomes, uh, we look at the client physical appearance. Number two is the client physical appearance. Now, this physical appearance, it tells us whether our client is well groomed, the client appears uh, uh, appropriately dressed or not dressed. That's why, like where I work, I work at a place where um, we have this participant that will go to meet them. We get a treatment plan, work on a treatment plan, set up their goals for them, get them, get them their medication. So the first thing we do in our notes is 
you want to give you, you want to read the client mood how did they meet the client when you travel all the client appearance the client mood the client affect are those things we look at first day when we meet a client out there we're going to do the client examination now so so uh that's why we look at keep everyone mute now so we look at that now the next thing we look at under there is um is, is the client physical appearance like i said all the physical appearance this include we assess the client voluntarily and involuntarily based on their body movement and their eyes contact i'm sorry that was the physical appearance like i said we look at the client body uh what the client is wearing the client now on the, from there we look at the what the client behavior so after physical appearance, we look at the client behavior is the third one the client's behavior client behavior under, under the behavior we look at the client mood and the client affect on our behavior what the client can do voluntarily and what the client can do involuntarily are those things we look out for the client what's the client mood okay i traveled the john brown resident john brown was in a good mood appropriate affect those that's those are the kind of thing we read in our note when we are doing mental health examination so so we look at the client mood look at, we look at the client affect the mood is the client mood provides information about the client emotional feeling so when you talk about your mood it's about the emotion what emotion the client finds himself or herself in is the client mood then the affect the client affect is how the mood is expressed so the mood is on your mind how do you feel how what are your thoughts that is the mood the affect is the expression or in short the interpretation of your mood so now you can have different you can be in different mood and express different affect you can be in a sad mood but you pretend that you're not sad that becomes your mood is different and your affect is different normally human beings should when, when we are normal to societal norms we should be able to exhibit mood a lot of our affect when you are standing somewhere and there's an accident occurring what is the mood you're going to be in you'll be in a sad mood and when you're in a sad mood how do you stay fold your arm do like this or you put your hand behind you and you're like shaking your head so that becomes appropriate affect and the, the mood and the affect they are appropriate or they are in line now but in mental illness our clients mood and affects are not the same in some cases take for example the client heard uh, that the parent is dead instead of the client crying the client began uh, uh, the, the, the client began laughing now the laughing in there it is not appropriate because the client has been to a sad message normally such a message will disturb our entire day and it will bring us into a sad mood but because their mood and their, and their affect are now working hands in hands so their mood will be driven from their affect and their reaction to things that they are doing in the day will not be the same as other people's reaction that's about the behavior of the client now then another the client don't look at the client cognitive and intellectual ability that will look at so many things now under this cognitive and, and intellectual client's ability 
there are things we look under here. Now, the client, we assess the client for their orientation to the, to the time, the persons, the place, are the three things the client assess to know how the client understands those things. The client orientation to the, to, 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 to the time, you ask the client, what's the time, what year, what's, today, what's today's date? So when you do that, you are accessing the client uh, orientation to time. What's your name? Where are you? Where do you think you are? Those are questions we ask the client when we are doing the MSE to understand what the client understands cognitive or what the client has cognitive or intellectual abilities. Then, now, we check the client memory on the cognition. Now, there are three kinds of memory. This is important for the NCLEX. There are three kinds of memories when it comes to mental illness. You, we have the immediate memory, the recent memory, and we have the remote memories. So there are three kinds of memory on our here, on our, on our cognition, on our cognition, we have one immediate memory, two, we have recent memory, and three, we have remote memory, the remote memory. Now on our behavior, remote, I said we have two things, we have the affect and we have the why. The, 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 we have the, 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 the mood and the affect on our behavior. On our cognition, we have immediate, recent, and remote memories. So I want to remember these things like half because the NCLEX can bring these things a lot when it comes to mental health and even some other fundamental questions. Now, there are three kinds of memories. The immediate memories, you ask the client to repeat series of numbers or list of things after, after you. Tell the client, can you say this? Yes. Uh, my name is Amandu. My name is Amandu. I'm from Liberia. I'm from Liberia. I'm a nurse. I'm a nurse. Now, if the client repeats those things after you, the client is having a recent memory. Meaning the client's recent memory is correct and is intact. Then we look at, I'm sorry, then that is the client's immediate memory. Now, the recent memory, you ask the client to recall, uh, to recall recent events, such as like a what soup did you eat this morning? What did you have for dinner? Now, if the client can tell you what they had for dinner, the client understands or the client has a recent or uh, the client has a recent memory. Okay, so what car did you drive to come to the data visit? What did you eat lastly? Where did you come from? Where do you live? So those are recent memories that those are questions we ask about recent memories. Then we have the remote memories. The remote memories is the memory the client has that we ask the client to state a fact from their past experience. Who was the president of the U.S. when you came to the U.S. since you say from Liberia? Or when you came to the U.S., who picked you up from the airport? Or when you began school in this country, which school did you go to first? Or what did you, where did you earn your first degree? What car did you drive when you started to buy a car in the, in the U.S.? What was the first car? What was the name of a high school instructor? Who was the first high school or uh, author in uh, back in the days who is who is your greatest of all time musical icon who do you think is uh, uh, who do you, now those questions bring those questions bring by the client memory if the client has uh, that memory intact which is a remote memory meaning the client has a good remote memory so those are the three kinds of memory we have the recent the immediate and the remote the immediate is we ask the client things to say after us to repeat what we say 
The recent one is what the client did like one or two minutes or three hours or four hours ago or like the same day. The remote memory is the client has to record past occurrence or past event. If the client can do that, the client has their past memory intact. So these are things we do for the client. Then we look at uh, glaucoma scale. Now, for this glaucoma scale, the examination is used to obtain some baseline assessment data um, for the client level of consciousness. If the client is on a comatose, then we do the GC, uh, the GCS to evaluate the client level of consciousness or the client coma. Now, the highest value for this coma scale is 15. 15 is the highest value for the glaucoma scale, and uh, the lowest value is 3. So the higher value is 3. I'm sorry, the higher value is, is 15. The lower value is, 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 is 3. Now, a score of 7 or less indicates a client that is in coma. So any score of 7 or less, 7 or less, this client is in coma. So anything above 8, anything from 8 upward, the client is good. So a client who is in coma, who cannot respond to painful signals, who cannot talk, who cannot uh, respond to, to spoken words, that client is in comatose, and that client is below 7 or uh, on the glaucoma scale. Now, then we go ahead. Now, so we go ahead and look at, after we review those MSE, then we look at the client mental health diagnosis. Now, when it comes to mental health, like I said, our diagnosis are based wholly and solely or hugely on or case definitions now these case definitions are linked or we get them from a book called the dsm dsm is diagnostic and statistical manual dsm is the book we use to look at to look up the client diagnosis that is what we call the dsm so they have various category when you get dsm4 dsm5 it's like how, like it's like you're talking about like how you have iphone 7 iphone 8 iphone 9 so every time the book is 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 is, is reviewed it comes with different number of revision so dsm4 dsm5 tr those are all different kind of version of the book of the same dsm so dsm or uh, the dsm is just our whole book that we use to look out mental illnesses when we are doing diagnosis. Now, under here, there are strategies um, that we look out for mental in mental health setting to treat mental patient. We look at one counseling. We do counseling to help create stability for the client who has mental problem. We do milieu therapy. Um, under this middle therapy, we orient the client to the physical setting. We identify rules and boundaries for the client. And for the setting, we ensure a safe environment for the client. And we also assist the client to participate in appropriate activities. Those are the constituency that, 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 that contains in the milieu therapy. Milieu therapy. These are the things we look at on our milieu therapy. It's M-I-L-I-E-U. Now, then we have, we also tell the word promote self-care activities for the client. On here, we look at the client, we offer the client assistance with self-care tax. We ask them to do things that will promote their self-care and self-esteem. 
we allow a time for the client to complete care tasks. We set incentive to promote the client's self-care. We set things, okay, if you do this, we'll give you this. That is incentive. We ask the client, so today is Friday, and we are going to do a grocery shopping. Since you want to go out, if you complete your goals at home or at the facility, meaning tomorrow you'll be, you'll, be, you'll be qualified or you'll be eligible to go out to do shopping at the grocery store. So if, you to, if tomorrow you pack your books in the morning, you get ready, other things will take you. So those are like you are giving the clients incentive for participating in the therapy. They will also do psychobiological intervention. For the psychobiological intervention for mental illness, the clients will administer prescribed medications for the clients who need the medication. We provide teaching to the clients and family about these medications that we've given them. That's what we do. Then another thing we do for them is we also monitor for the adverse effect, the side effect of these medications that we've ordered for them or we've prescribed for them. Those are the things we do on a psychobiological intervention when it comes to mental health treatment. Then we also provide for the client cognitive and behavioral therapies. Now, under there, I want to define these following words under cognitive and behavioral therapy. One, we do for the client operant conditioning. We do one operant conditioning for the client. We do operant conditioning. Um, we do modeling or modeling, modeling for the client, and then we also do for the client systemic desensitization. We do systemic, systemic desensitization, desensitization for the client, desensitization for the client. Now, these are different therapies the clients should the client the client would do to get a just of the things that the client is faced in his or her environment so you look at those words look at modeling operant conditioning look them out one at a time and you understand what they are then the client is taught teaching skills tell the client how to cope with all things in the client environment then we do health promotion and maintenance and we do case management now for the case management this is very big on the endless case management. When we do clients case management, we are coordinating holistic care. We are we are putting together holistic care for the client, which will include the client's medical care, one, the client mental health care, two, the client social services. Those are the things we do when it comes to case management. So the client case manager or help to manage the client's mental, the client medical condition, other things, the client mental health conditions, and the client social services. So, if the client is to be referred from the Lehigh Mental Hospital to the Lehigh to another rehab center, it is the client case manager who does that particular transitioning. If the client is to leave from uh, the place to go back home. The care manager makes sure that the client is in a proper condition, that the client, parent, the client, family, and now the social worker, they are together in they are together and they are working on the client's discharge. Now, there is a role 
of a case manager that is not the same role of a client who is a social worker, just so you know that. So these are things we look out for the client under the MSE. Now, then we look at legal and ethical issues. Now, this legal and ethical issues when it comes to nursing, it is a very big thing on the endless. But uh, we do these things in 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 in, in, uh, in fundamental, and they are still here in uh, under uh, uh, psychiatry. Now, under here, the nurse will the nurse works in the mental health setting is responsible for practicing ethically, competently, safely, and uh, in a manner that is consistent with local, state, and federal laws. So as we practice, like I said at the beginning of this lecture, I said, the standard of psych nursing is guided by so many different bodies, by the Nurse Association of America, the American Psych Association, the International, the International Society of Psych Nurse Association, there are so many different bodies that, 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 that set up the standard for nursing practice in our setting. Now, under here, we have different kinds of clients' rights. We have the client's mental, we have our legal rights of clients in the mental health setting. I'm not going to go into this. You can look at it on YouTube or sorry on Google to, to look at the client bill of rights for mental health for mental health care. It will tell you about it. It's too. It's, it's I'm not going to go into it now. Under here, um, as when a client is admitted, there are things the client needs. For that, the client needs to sign informed consent. The client needs to sign informed consent. The client also have very specific rights, including informed consent, confidentiality, rating plan of care, communication, provision of adequate interpre interpretation, care provided for the client to, to promote the client dignity, the client freedom, the client site advance directive, we got the client uh, least recruitive intervention. Those are things we look out for client when the client is under our care. So there are all legal issues. That are the client local specifically. Now, those legal issues, um, we say there are some legal issues regarding health care that are decided in the court using a second last civil category called the tort law. So, we, we use the tort law to decide on some legal issues pertaining to the client. Then, we have other ethical principles. Now, go to your student's book. And review those various ethical principles under like advanced directive, under what we call the tort laws, the advanced directive, the good Samaritan law. Look at all those laws under uh under your standards and know what they are and what each one of them mean. Now, then we have few ethical issues when it comes to nursing setting. One, we have beneficiaries. Beneficent is an ethical guidelines or is an ethical guideline that qualify that, that that says the quality of doing good can be described as charity. So a nurse who helps a newly admitted client who has a psychotic disorder to feel safe in the environment. That is beneficent. So the client has disorder of psychiatry, the, 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 the client has a psychotic disorder. The client the client does not feel safe in the environment. The nurse Helping the client to feel safe in that environment is an example of beneficent for the client. 
Now, then we have autonomy. Autonomy is when the client is able to make decision on his or her own. That becomes autonomy. Autonomy. Now, it's wherein the client has the right is and is able to make decision on his or her own. That becomes autonomy. Now, under here, then we have justice. Justice is the fairness. Justice is about fairness. Fairness when it comes to handling client activities. So, what we give to a client who is poor, but is at the facility to treat the client headache, a client who is a millionaire should receive the same treatment. If they pay the same amount of money. If the client came to the hospital and the client has a particular condition and the client is charged, another client who has money, who is, who is wealthy, should be charged the same amount. That is fed, that is what we call justice. Then we have fidelity. Fidelity is about loyalty and faithfulness to the client and to, the, to one's duty. I'm loyal to my nursing profession because it is what I love, it is what I do in my life. So I'm loyal to, to my nursing career. So because of my loyalty to my nursing career, I still, uh, I asked the nurse, okay, so an example of this could be, a client asked the nurse to be present when he talks to his mother for the first time in a year. The nurse remains with the client during this interaction. The nurse is showing fidelity in that case. Then we have veracity. Now, this is about the truth. Telling the truth. Veracity. No matter how high it is, when a client has a, has, a, has, a, has a diagnosis, the nurses and other people who are charged to tell the client what happened to them, they must go ahead and tell the client exactly what happened to them. They cannot lie to the client. They must tell the client the reality. Example is, the client states, you and that other staff member were talking about me. Weren't you? The nurse took the replies. We were discussing ways to help you and relate to the other client in a more positive way. That becomes veracity, which means saying the truth, but nothing but the truth. These are things we look at under these principles and understand the meaning when we are working for our client in the facility. Now, there are other legal responsibilities for the clients. Those responsibilities include um, confidentiality. When we are providing care for our participants or our clients out there, we want to uphold the virtues of confidentiality. The client's right to privacy is protected under the HIPAA rule that was formulated in, in, in 2003. Now, this HIPAA rule was formulated in 2003 to help to safeguard the client's privacy as they are out there receiving cares. It is important to gain an understanding on the state you're in or the federal law regarding confidentiality as a nurse the nurse should share information about the client either verbal or written 
only with those who are responsible to care for the client. In that case, that is not breach of confidentiality, but all in that is regarded as breach of confidentiality. Speci so only provide only the only clients who provide inform who provide a consent should the nurse share information with other persons not involved in the client treatment plan. So if the client tells you give my HIVA result to that nurse who works on the wall or to that guy who works on the wall or who comes to me, it is the right of the client to request that the client says that the nurse should rec should should recognize and go by, by the client demands. That's the client which and the nurse should be able to execute that particular client's which at a time. Now then when it comes to admission for mental health clients, there are two kinds of admission we look at under here. It might let's say three tab now, but the first two would be voluntary admission and involuntary admission. Now, the voluntary admission is the client or the client's guardians chooses to go to the hospital and say, I have come to get admitted. I'm having these mental illness symptoms or I'm having symptoms of schizophrenia or paranoia and I want to get admitted. If the client ever got admitted through that particular case, the client is undergoing voluntary admission when it comes to that. Now, then we have the involuntary admission. Now, this involuntary admission is the client entered the mental health facility against her will. The client was seen throwing stones at people, putting other people at risk, and the client was arrested after fighting the police. And the police took the client at the mental hospital and had him admitted. That is involuntary admission. It was done against the client's will. To safeguard the client, to safeguard others, or to safeguard the client's surroundings. Then we have what we call temporary emergency admission. We have the temporary emergency admission. This is where the client is admitted for emergent mental health care, care due to inability to make decisions regarding care. So if the client cannot make care by themselves, the client will go through what we call temporary emergency admission. So those are the kind of admission the client can have when you are providing admission for the client. Now, uh, after that, our client also, um, we look at some other things that are important for the client. Now, we look at for mental health, we look for mental illness, we look at defense mechanism. Now, for defense mechanism, it is a huge thing on the ankle, and I want us to take our time and look at the various defense mechanisms and master them for the good of the ankle. They might sound simple, and yes, they are simple only if you read them and you study them. There are various defense mechanisms. I cannot go through all of them, but I'll look at few. And if you look in the Sundas book, they are there in bulk. And I will also upload 
series of different defense mechanisms into our group chat and we'll do questions on them tonight when we come on. Now, we have sublimation. Sublimation um, is like dealing with unacceptable feelings or impulses by unconsciousness. Substituting these uh, feelings for different things. So it's wearing example could be the client who is uh who wants to kill who wants to be a serial killer or a serial killer decides to leave serial killer or to, to leave kill or, or did not kill anybody but did not find someone to kill and went to the meat shop and became a butcher began bushing or butchering meat butchering beef meat lamb meat and other things so the father he's cutting flesh he's cutting tissue and seeing blood that is satisfying his ego that becomes a defense mechanism so he could not get where he wanted to get but instead he did something else to ease that feeling that becomes sublimation not defense mechanism then we have sub suppression this is wherein the client voluntarily deny thoughts and feelings that are unpleasant do you love this guy no, I don't love him. I really hate him. He's not even cute. I don't even like him. Now, in your heart, you are fully aware that you love this guy and you like him. You know he's cute in your mind, in your heart, in your body, in your soul. He's cute. And you are saying that he's not cute and you don't like him. Meaning, you are suppressing your own feeling. That is a form of defense mechanism called suppression. Now, then we have what we call repression. There is a slight difference between repression and suppression. The repression is you are doing it unconsciously. When you repress a memory that is unpleasant, meaning you are forgetting, you are forgotten it unintentionally. It is not being done intentionally. Meaning you don't, you don't like something, something occur, and you are involved into a terrible situation. Now you are having PTSD and you do not remember exactly what you went through that becomes repression now if something occur and you rape a child you the rapist and you do not want to admit to that to, to admit to raping the child and you say rape is bad i have never ever raped a child before and you know conscientiously that you rape a child or you've raped people before you cannot admit to it and you dare denying it meaning you are suppressing that rape memory in your head that is what we call suppression so in suppression the client is doing it intentionally while in repression the client is doing it unintentionally due to the due to the client just due to the client own defense mechanism or the client own makeup now then we have displacement Displacement is shifting the feelings to an object, to a person, situation, or another object. You went to do a test. You did not pass the test. You went back home and you got mad. You began hitting on your child, hitting on the door, punching the door. Like a guy who went for his uh, driving test, he failed his test, but decided to go to the gym to punch the douchebag. So he got inside the what? Punch, inside the like, box and other things. So that does by his his punching, it is a form of what displacement. He's displacing his anger on something. It could be an object, 
it could be a person it could be anything then we have reaction formation um reaction formation is wherein uh is overcompensating or demonstrating the opposite behavior of what is felt you and your friend moving together and you saw a girl that you love this girl you saw something that you love the girl you say oh yeah my friend is the one who loves this girl or you say oh you, but i think this guy is good for you i think you can love this guy that is why reaction formation these are things you do in defense mechanism so we have several ones go ahead look at them read them and know what they are so you so what so let me just name you a few so we have altruism we have sublimation suppression repression regression displacement reaction formation undoing rationalization dissociation denial compensation identification intellectualization conversion sp splitting and projection these are different kinds of defense mechanism there are many but get name for you few now then look at anxiety when it comes to anxiety it is viewed as um anxiety is viewed on the continent with increasing levels of with increasing level of of uh, our ability to not function so with anxiety sometimes we cannot function now that's why we need it to function but at a certain level when it has surpasses the level when it has surpassed the level that we should not it should not be at meaning it has reached the optimum or the maximum point it passes that point meaning we cannot function anymore so it should go ahead it should be able to increase to, to, to a particular level a certain level it should not pass that level once it passes that level definitely we cannot function now so we have different kind of state when it comes to anxiety we have different kind of state when it comes to anxiety one the normal state the normal state is uh when a healthy life force that is necessary for survival, for survival motivate people to take action that is normal anxiety and that's why we all need so take for example right um under here let me show, let me give you an example on on anxiety so we have the normal anxiety so you have normal anxiety now this is what many will say i have to schedule my rn exam or my lpn exam before i be serious to study now so what drives you what that will drive you to doing something is a normal form of anxiety so the nurse the student nurse graduated from school and she has not started studying because her test is not scheduled there is no anxiety so she went ahead and scheduled her test for uh in 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 days time now as the time uh, uh, as, as the time gets nearer she intensified her study that's anxiety is what that is leading her to intensify her studies that becomes a normal anxiety then we have 
acute anxiety. Um, this anxiety is precipitated by an imminent loss or change in the client's state that is threatened by the client's sense of security. This becomes uh, so you have the first one is normal. The second anxiety is what we refer to as the acute state. This acute state is where something occurred that is not pleasant. Something occurred, you lost something, or there's an imminent danger, or you were here and you heard a gun, a gun sound, or somebody shouted, somebody something doesn't that 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 that, like, that that caught you as a surprise. That is a what an acute anxiety state, or somebody died, somebody just just oh yeah, the person passed away. That becomes an acute anxiety state. Then we have the chronic, the chronic. The chronic state um, is wherein there is where the client develops it over time. Starting at childhood, the client develops it, the client has the symptoms, and the client goes into it, and the client sort of have fatigue, and the client having frequent headache. That becomes the chronic anxiety stage. These are the anxiety we look at. As we go along, so these are just uh, the state now. Then we have the levels of anxiety. Anxiety has various levels. Now, these levels we go through them sometimes, sometimes we jump over some and get to the last end, depending on where we find ourselves. Now, let's see the various levels now this is what the anxiety is very big on we have the levels of anxiety levels of anxiety we have level one is the mild anxiety mild level mild anxiety mild this is just mild if it is mild it occurs in our normal everyday experiences out there uh, this morning I was scheduled for a COVID-19 test so when they call me oh yes uh, you came in contact with a participant two weeks ago or eight days ago who had COVID-19 so you cannot go to work you gotta stay home and go do a test just that saying go and do a test I felt different way that feeling i gather when i was called and told that i had to go and do a covid 19 test that is a mild anxiety in that case now this occurs in our everyday life it's wearing we're going to have the following characteristics when we have the mild anxiety and my concern for you is for the endless I will want you to understand and write down these symptoms that are going to occur in the various levels of anxiety. For mild anxiety, which happens in our everyday life, it has the following characteristics that we can identify. We can identify the cause of what making us to feel that emotional anxiety or that feeling. Now, the symptoms occur. The symptoms occurring here include you will have that vague feeling of discomfort, vague feelings of discomfort that's one two the client will become restless 
The client will become irritable. The client will tend to be impatient. And the client will become apprehensive. So those are the characteristics of a mild anxiety. Then, what will be the client reaction when the client having this anxiety? Now, this is important to understand because sometimes the NCLEX will not bring you the level of anxiety. They will bring you the symptoms and they will ask you which anxiety the person is going through. Or they will bring you the client reaction and ask you which level of anxiety the client is undergoing. Now, in short, if the client is at a stage, the client exhibits these symptoms of the mild anxiety, the client will react such as the client will do the finger or foot tapping. You see them tapping their finger or foot. You see them like this. So when you went for an interview, the interviewer look in your face directly and look at whether you're going to show these symptoms. So if you like doing the foot tapping or the finger tapping, that is a sign of anxiety. Or lip chewing. Chewing your lip. Chewing your teeth. Those are symptoms for what? Those are behaviors that someone who has mild anxiety will show when they are going through mild anxiety. So they are doing those things because it helps to relieve what they are going through. So that's why they are doing it. So they do the lip smacking, the lip biting, the finger tapping, the foot tapping. Just sometimes they do it and you see them racking. Those are things they do to, what, to ease their emotion. Then we have the moderate level of anxiety. The second one is the moderate. So if it is above mild, it goes to moderate. In moderate anxiety level, it occurs when we cannot manage our mild level. If the mild level becomes unmanageable, then we move to what moderate levels. At the moderate level, this slightly reduces the client perception, the client, how the client understands things. Um, in this case, the client can still solve problems. But their perception, their understanding are getting narrower, are closing up. So at this, thing, at this point in time, if you think the client something, the client, the client ears are open, but the client cannot listen. The client eyes are open, but the client cannot see. That's when people are going to say, but I was telling you something. Why you didn't hear me? You didn't understand me. Your ears are open. Your eyes are open, your nose are open, but you cannot see, hear, or smell when you are having a moderate anxiety. And yet still, you still have a better decision-making process. You can still make decisions, you can still solve problems in the moderate state. Now, under here, the client will show the following characteristics as symptoms for moderate anxiety which include one the client cannot concentrate appropriately the client will get very tired the client will keep pacing walking up and down pacing showing these signs 
The client will also have high-pitched voice. The client will talk loud or start to shout. The client will have voice tremors. The client's voice is not normal. Their voice becoming muffled. Their voice is trembling. The client will have shakiness. They will become shaken. The client will have increased heart rate, tachycardia. The client will have increased breath rate or increased respiratory rate. The client will report some other somatic symptoms, which will include headache, backache. The client will feel urinary urgency. The client will want to go to the bathroom to use the toilet. The client will go into insomnia. These are all somatic symptoms. They are not real. Somatic symptoms mean that these symptoms do not have medical origin. They are not real. But because of the state of anxiety they have, we find ourselves in, these symptoms come about. They come out. You want to urinate. You, 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 you want to pass too. Because your bowel has been exposed to hormones that have irritated us to that state. Those are things you're going to see in here. When the client has these conditions or these symptoms, the client will report these symptoms. The client has this type of anxiety, usually benefit from the duration of others. So the client, this is the client, this is the client, you observe the client when the client has a moderate anxiety. Then we have the severe anxiety. In the severe case, it's when we have fallen short to manage our moderate state or our moderate level we did not we did not manage the mild we went to moderate we did not manage the moderate now we've arrived at the severe state in a severe state let's see what occurs in here in the severe state now the client perceptual view is greatly reduced with distorted perception the client perceptual view, how the client view things, how the client looks at things, how the client imagine things, how the client react to things, how the client or or, or how the client understand the environment and its people, it will be shifted. The client understanding will get missing. The the client now going to have what we call distorted perception. The client sort of have this distortion of their thinking faculty. Then the client can no longer function effectively. Then the client will be confused. They will have feelings of impending doom. They will feel very doom. The client will have hyperventilation. The client will have tachycardia. The client will have withdrawal uh, symptoms. They will become very loud. They will have rapid speech. And they will be very aimless, they will engage into aimless activities. The client does not know what he or she is doing. So at that point in time, these are things the client gonna going to have. It's like we saw what happened during the during the ASL, the access or the ASL in uh, in the Middle East. So you have three guys standing online and they have beheld the first two. What state of humor? You think the last guy who is waiting to be beheaded will be in at, at that stage? He's not going to be normal. He will be at 
a very huge level of anxiety or even panic state. The state that he will become helpless because he has watched people slaughter the first two of his friends and he's the third person in Rome. So this thing we are saying, it will happen to him from stage one up to this last stage. The last stage is the panic level. So after severe high, uh, anxiety, we go into panic level. Panic. Now, in panic level, let's see what's happening in here. This is carried out by, by disturbed behavior. So the client will have disturbed behavior. The client is not able to, to retain, to, to like take in anything. The client becomes blank. They will have a blank memory. They cannot retain, they cannot take in anything memory-wise when the client is at panic level. The client will experience a very extreme fright or horror. The client will have this horror feeling or this particular frightened feeling. The client will, like they are so afraid, they'll they'll be frightened, and the client will become very much hyper. They will have severe hyperactivities or flight. At this point, the client will want to want escape. That's why you see a client who is in the plane, and the plane about to crash, and the client jump from the plane. Or the client is in a tall story building and the building is gutter with fire and the client jumps on a 109 floor. Because at that point in time, the client has gone through from, from mad anxiety to moderate to severe and the client is now at panic level. The level at which the client cannot do anything, the client cannot perceive and the client memory is black. So in that case, the client only wonder why to Flight. The client has gotten frightened. Now they, they, they just want to fly out to escape. So they want to do anything to escape the scene. Even if it will still kill them, they will do it. That's where they're going to be. At this point in time, the client can become stiff. The client is immobile. Have you observed when a car is about to hit somebody? The person becomes stiff. The person cannot move because. The client will try to they, 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 they will apply effort but when the vehicle or when the moving object reaches next to them. That is the panic level. They become so stiff and immobile they cannot move. That is when they are having these symptoms. And, and lastly, the client will lose their speech. They can't talk. Their pupils will get dilated. The client will have severe withdrawal. The client cannot sleep. The client will have delusions and the client will have hallucination in the mental health setting. These are things the client is going to experience when the client is undergoing this level of anxiety. Now, it is important that we know these levels and know the characteristics for this level and know what can we do in each and every one of these levels. Now, I will look at the nursing intervention for these levels. Now, for mild to moderate anxiety, if it is mild or moderate, we use active listening to demonstrate willingness to help. So if, if, the client is, if, the, if you have a client that is undergoing mild to moderate anxiety, 
the nurse should use active listening to help the client solve their problem. The nurse can also use other communication techniques such as open-ended questions, giving broad opening, exploring, and seeking clarifications. All these things can help to calm the client down. Most of the when the client is having some mental condition. We encourage the client to express their feelings, to develop trust, and identify the source of anxiety. That is what we do to help the client. A client who is having severe to panic level anxiety, this client must be provided an environment that will meet the client's physical and safety needs in general. This client remain should be we should remove the client any client who is having now. The goal in there is to provide trust. We cannot leave a client who is pushing these things and go anywhere. Now, the English is good at asking this question. They will give they will say a client is experiencing shakiness. The client is experiencing the, the, client, the, client, the client is experiencing rapid speech, or the client's voice has changed. They have a muffled voice. Their speech is rapid, and uh, the client is having urinary organs or urinary frequency. Or they'll give the symptom. They'll ask you what what would the nurse do? A the nurse should run and cover assistant. Now, in that case, no. If the client is having this symptom and the client falls on a severe to moderate or severe to panic level anxiety, the nurse should remove the client or else the client can harm them, harm himself or herself. So we go ahead, we set limits for this client, we use short firm simple statement we direct the client to acknowledge the reality and focus on what is present in the environment provide the client with a quiet environment and we minimize any environmental stimuli for the client who is undergoing these things these are things the client would do for us to keep in tight with the client any question now, so we look at, uh, we, 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 we look at these therapeutic tools. Now, these are important therapeutic tools that I want us to look at, take a look at them, and take a look at how um, we work towards them. Now, when it comes to therapeutic tools, what can we do when our clients are faced with certain disorder, like phobia disorder, like panic? like other stress disorder what can we do there are things that we do that are just therapeutic so we'll look at one the first one is free association free association now under here this is um this this fall on our psychoanalysis and psychoanalysis has a deep root into psychology the school of thought that is linked with our sigma fraud one of the psychologists that we we we, we read about in school now sigma fraud have different ideas but that's not our concern our concern is 
the tools or our concerns are the tools that that were developed under the psychoanalysis or the, the psychoanalytical theory these are psychotherapy and behavioral therapies that we use to help our clients now one is free association it's a tool which is the spontaneous uncensored talking of whatever comes to the client's mind so the client goes for therapy the client takes it the client is emotional something hurts the client feelings and we want the client to get ease to, to get calm down so the client will go ahead and do what we call free association is wearing the client take a seat and sit down and verbalizes everything that comes to their mind or in their mouth to say they do not censor their wording they, they do not mean or uh, they do not mean their words they do not uh economize their words their words from their mouth are what on their mind that is what we call free association so they are talking exactly to clean to to like clear up their mind to clear up their emotions that is about free association so, so when that is done they get calmed down then we have dream analysis and, interpre and interpretation dream analysis and interpretation Freud said um this how do of our unconscious mind uh when you are sleeping and you are dreaming those dreams we have what Sigma Freud talks about when, uh, when he says we have an unconscious mind that controls our life so that becomes what we call the unconscious mind then a tool what is what we call transference transference I talked about it a few days ago now transference is um, like uh, the feelings the client has developed towards the therapist so the patient developed a feelings toward the nurse while they were having a professional relationship simply because someone else from somewhere treated the patient badly so the patient have the same feeling against another nurse who has never seen him before that become transference from the patient to the nurse is transferring now if the nurse takes her feeling from outside to the patient that becomes counter transference this is counter transference so we have transfer and counter transference in among these uh these uh therapeutic tools another ones include the defense mechanism all of them are all honor therapeutic tools that we use to do things that are unconsciously or consciously these are things we do for the client now then when it comes to behavioral therapy when it comes to behavioral therapy there are things i want to go over one another one is cognitive reframing cognitive cognitive reframing now let me tell you something good about these things sometimes you go to the end class you might not even have 10 questions about clinical conditions you will have all your questions about these things about things that do not have any clinical 
or biking of what you've been studying. You might not have question on disease condition. You might have bulk of your question on the play therapies, these therapeutic tools we use, those common safety mechanisms like fire safety or life safety in the house, what you do. Sometimes you have huge portion of your question on these things. Sometimes you go for an class, you do not have any question on this thing. Everything is all clinical. So, but the inkless because we do not know where the test is coming from, so we must study everything and master everything for the English. So, any part of the English that we are placed, we are good. That's why we have to go through these things. Now, on the cognitive reframing, uh, it is changing our cognitive distortion. This can decrease anxiety. We divert. Remember, we said when, when, when we are at the level of panic, what happened to us? Our perception become distorted. So we do cognitive reframing to divert our bad memory, our bad cognition we are having at the point of this or these problems. So that's how this uh, this help to decrease our anxiety. Now, in this process or in this therapy, it assists the client to identify negative thoughts and produce anxiety uh, that produce anxiety examine the cause and develop supportive ideas that will replace those negative self-talk i'm not worth i'm not worth it i don't think i'm even i even look good i think i'm the ugliest thing god ever created no matter how i dress i get out there no one sees me to be a better person who dresses well i always look like the, the worst dressed person in a gallery those are negative thoughts that come to your mind when you are having these problems so when you do cognitive reframing it helps you to shift this thought this this thought or uh, these thoughts coming to your mind and make it into what into good thoughts which will reduce the anxiety that's about negative or uh, that that is about cognitive reframing then we have what we call priority we do priority restructuring we do priority restructuring we do priority restructuring now under here we assess the client to identify what requires priority such as what the client can devote their energy into so the client has so many things they want to do so we help the client to set up a goal like a scale of preference and we label them according to what we prefer to come ahead. The client wants to braid her hair. She wants to wash her hair. She wants to go to the market. She wants to wash her clothes. She wants to wash her hands to get some food. She wants to make food. Which one is the priority? So we do what we call priority restructuring to help the client set up those goals in a, on a scale of preference. That's what we do for the client who is undergoing this. Then we do journal keeping for the client. Journal keeping is wherein uh, we write down the client's stressful events. What can stress the client up? We write everything down for the client and we sit and watch the client go through, goes through it one at a time. Then we do what we call assertive training. Assertive training. This, this is done for the client also. Um, for the client also in this this will assist or it will teach us the clients 
uh, on how to express their feelings and solve problems in a non-aggressive way. So you see some clients who are at this, uh, at those, uh, less, some, some, some clients who we have at this group, uh, at a group home or at those group home, or uh, what happened to them, they cannot express their feelings without getting mad. Even sometimes, you and I who have never been through mental health train, uh, treatment or through mental illness treatment, we can still not express our feelings when we are mad, when we are angry. And your anger cannot interpret what you, what you want to say. You can be cool. It happens even in our homes. You can tell your wife or your husband exactly what you want to communicate to him or her in the low and a quiet tone and he or she he or she will understand what you say in an appropriate manner rather than you shouting so th that's why i said i said i said sometimes these things are also applied to you and i who think we are the 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 folder or the highest functional people then we do thought monitoring this help us to be aware of our negative thinking these are things we do now. Then we look at behavioral therapy. Now, as you listen to me, there are a few points I want to stress before we can end this particular session. One, I want to stress on um I talk about therapeutic tools. Now, under behavioral tools, there are things we do. Under cognitive tools, we talk about Priority restructuring, journal keeping, monitoring thoughts, assertive trainings, all for honor cognitive reframing. Now, we look at therapies that we use on a behavioral problem, or on a, we, look, we look at the tools we use on a behavioral therapy. Then, I ask you to look out for me what is modeling. Modeling, let's see it one at a time and understand what or where can we use them. One, Modeling. Modeling is a tool we use. When do we use modeling? Where do we use modeling? How is modeling helpful to us when we are dealing with our patients? In modeling, the therapist will serve as the role model. For a client who imitates this modeling to improve the behavior. So you ask the client, who is your role model? Okay, my role model is uh, Nelson Mandela. Who was Mandela? Mandela was uh, a non-resistant uh, human rights advocate or somebody who advocated for the independence of South Africa. He used non-violent resistance to have his voice heard. So how did he go about achieving it? We studied about Nelson Mandela, then we do a role play. So the therapist will be acting as Nelson Mandela and the client who is ill will come in and will imitate everything the therapist will do. In that case, it's like the, 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 the patient is modeling his behavior into a good behavior, leaving those bad behavior, getting into a new self behavior that will help to change their life. That's about modeling. In this modeling, it can occur in an acute care milieu, therapeutic milieu, to help the client to improve interpersonal skills, 
The table will demonstrate appropriate behavior in a stressful situation with the goal of having the client imitating the behavior. So in short, in modeling, the client imitates a behavior of a person that they love, that they, serve, that, that, that they regard as a role model. So that's what happened in the case of modeling. Then we have operant conditioning. Two operant conditioning. In operant conditioning, it is wherein the client receives positive rewards after doing something that is good. So in here, this positive reward is also called positive reinforcement. Take for example, a client received a token for good behavior. Your child went to school, your child got, got his grade sheet and he got A's in all his tests. He performed excellently well. When he got home, what did he do for him? You took him to chocolate cheese the next week. Or you took him to the theater to watch his favorite movie. That is positive reinforcement. So the more the child will do the good behavior, the better services the child will receive. So that becomes what we call operant conditioning. In operant conditioning, it talks about the client reinforcement. How can we do positive? Now, we have two kinds of reinforcement. We have negative and we have positive reinforcement. The negative reinforcement is the client is doing good things and we give the client token to increase the client good things that they are doing. Now, the negative reinforcement is wherein the client does bad things and we do something that is not that the client does not like to shift away or we cut off something the client would like to change their behavior. Example is we set rules that if anyone do their choice correctly, they will watch television at night by 10 p.m. Some clients did their choice. Some clients did not do their choice. So the ones that did the choice watched the television by 10 p.m. The ones who refused did not watch television by 10 p.m. So the ones who refused did not do it we carry on what we call negative reinforcement. The ones that agree to do their chores and are watching the TV, they are watching the TV. That TV watching is referred to as the positive reinforcement. So the four honor operant conditioning. Then, under that we have systematic desensitization. We have the third one is systematic. Systematic desensitization. Sensitization. Under here, um, this therapy is planned. It's progressive or graduated exposure to anxiety-provoking stimuli in real life. During the exposure, the client uses resolution techniques to suppress anxiety level. So if the client is afraid of uh, anything that brings fear to the client, the client is exposed to that. So if the client is afraid of snake, the client gets exposed to snake. If the client is afraid of a uh, dog, they get exposed to dog. Now, but in that case, the client will use relaxation method 
to calm down their anxiety. If we're doing that, the client is going to what we call system, uh, systematic desensitization. Now, then we have aversion therapy. Aversion therapy, A-V-E-R-S-I-O-N, aversion therapy or aversive therapy. This is pairing of a maladaptive behavior with a punishment or unpleasant stimulus to promote a change in behavior. Example is when you sit on the car, when you sit in the car seat and you do not put on the seat belt, what happened? There is a very unpleasant sound that will keep making you hear that bam, bam, bam until you get put up put on your seatbelt. When the seatbelt has been fastened, the sounds go away. So that is what we call an example of aversive or aversion therapy. Something unpleasant is being done because you've gone wrong. So when you stop doing that thing that is unpleasant, that unpleasant solution you're going through stops right there. That is all called the aversion therapy. Then we talk about the next one. Now this will follow techniques we talk about flooding. Flooding is another one. Flooding. Let's see flooding. Flooding is exposing a client while in the company of a therapist to a great deal of undesirable stimulus in an attempt to turn off the anxiety response. Now, in the in the therapist present, so the client is afraid of snakes. So we put the client in the top and put snakes in the top of the client. And we stand and watch the client until the client shout, 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 shout. The client stops shouting. And know that these snakes do not bite. These snakes, you can be a first snake or, or, or cockroaches. Or you put a client in a, in, in a box with flies, with, uh, with, with, with bugs. Until the client shouts, they stop shouting. That is what we call flooding. The client was exposed to huge amount of phob phobia or phobic objects and the client shouted and the client stopped shouting the client phobia went away that become flooding then we have um thought stopping we have thought stopping thought stopping um thought stopping is wherein we teach a client when negative thoughts or compulsive behaviors occur, you see the client, you shut the client, you tell the client stop. Or what we do sometimes, we take a band, like a, a band of rubber, right? A band. Now, the client put the band on their hand, and as the client has some compulsion, and the client does the compulsion, you pinch the client hand or you lift the band and reach the band the band smash the client finger and the client stop producing the compulsion that's what we call thought stopping now let me just make this easier for, for us to understand now what i want for you to do is this now uh we tell the client compulsion is over and over action over and over action in doing something now the obsession is the thought the thought becomes the obsession then the action becomes the compulsion 
So that's what we do for the client. So the client put this robot around the head like this. Now this these are these are done for clients who involved in the OCD obsessive compulsive disorder. So this client always playing with his ear or cleaning his ear like dead in his ear. Every time he sits, you see with a towel or a tissue clean your ear like he had dead your ear. He has done it until this whole side of his ear is now dark in complexion because he keeps knocking the ear. So we take a band, put it around his head. We sit next to him and see him. The moment he starts to knock his ear, we pull this band and release it. Now, in that the pains from this band will make him to stop knocking his ear. He wait for a while. After a few minutes, he goes back doing it again. When he starts to do it, you pull the bang and release the bang. So this continual uh, reminding him will make him to keep stopping. That is what we call thought stopping. So all these tools are used to create stability into our client who are having this stressful disorder and other things in their lifespan. So we're going to stop here. And now you can go ahead, look at those words. We found those words.